each of us has an idea of who we are and what are our attributes and how people see us. The devil, when he comes to us in temptation, tries to convince us that we're really someone that we're not. And that is the heart of this message as he comes to Jesus and tries to get Jesus to question who he really is. This sermon was originally recorded at Castle Rock Middle School, January 19th, 2014. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank the Lord for the last verse in that one, huh? That's about the most depressing hymn ever, until you get to the end and you walk with angels, which is good. Uh, we're talking about the temptation of Jesus, and what we're doing these last couple weeks is spending some time in the book of Matthew, and we're going to do that all the way till at least mid-February, and then once we get to about Lent, I think I'm going to preach on confession just before uh, Ash Wednesday. When we get into Lent, I'll probably move into a series on Titus, which is kind of a short book, and I think you'll really enjoy it, the book of Titus. We're going to spend that time in Lent and then coming up to Easter. A grow group sign-up is today, as I told you, and that's something you can sign up with your Take Action card. That's going to start February 9th, so you can even do that now. I won't, I won't be too angry. Uh, you can sign up with your grow group. Just put your name and email, and we'll follow up with you this week and try and plug you into the best spot for you. It's really been a great thing. About 90% of our people sign up, uh, 90% of the adults sign up for a grow group, and it's been a great thing for a lot of people, so I think you'd enjoy it as well if you haven't experienced that before. So we're going to be uh, spending some time in Matthew and making a connection. One of the great things about spending some time in one particular book is you learn kind of the angles that a certain writer takes. And you don't get that if you kind of bounce from book to book to book. And for example, if you were to read the Gospel of Luke, you would notice that often he talks about uh, in great detail the sicknesses that Jesus healed. And if you read it in like the book of Mark, it just says, and Jesus healed people. Why would Luke talk about in detail the sicknesses that were healed? Luke was a doctor. So, I mean, this makes sense, right? This makes sense. Or if you get to um, very detail-oriented, uh, and he writes also the book of Acts. So uh, Luke, and uh, really the continuation of the book of Luke, would be the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, which is, uh, if you think of it that way. Mark is like just boom, 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 boom. Most people believe it's the first one written. Do you know what the angle is for Matthew? He writes to Jewish people. Uh, primarily, he was a tax collector, and he left that profession, which was not really well thought of. We're not going to spend time on that today. Um, not really well thought of, and he's trying to convince through his, um, his account that Jesus really is the promised Messiah, and um, he, he goes through great lengths. He does that. That's number one, and number two, he spends some time to try and say Jesus is the Savior of all people, and for example, he's the only one that includes the wise men who are non-Jewish people that come to the tomb, uh, not the tomb, the, uh, the manger. He's the only one that includes Jesus' words when he sends off the disciples. And he says, go and make disciples of all nations. That's, that comes from the book of Matthew. If you read Mark, it just says, like, go preach the word. Uh, Mark cuts everything down. It's like a Cliff Notes version of all the other gospels. So if you're in a hurry, read the book of Mark. It's just like, and then, and then, and then, and then done. Just like that, 16 chapters. The other ones are like 28. So um, the, the book of Matthew, written probably about 20 or 30 years after Jesus had uh, died and rose again, and now he's giving this account to people to say, I want to show you that this really is the Savior. And he makes a number of connections, and I don't want to push this too far, but I think there's a fascinating connection that the uh, writer Matthew makes with the Old Testament people of Israel and showing very, this close connection with who Jesus is. So I'm going to spend a little time. You've got to buckle up a little bit because... Um, this is uh, some teaching that's going to go on, and then we'll kind of go on with the temptation of Jesus. He quotes this, So when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew quotes this in Matthew chapter 2, 
And the reason he does that is we have the birth of Jesus, and then uh, remember Herod wanted to kill all the baby boys in uh, Bethlehem, so then Jesus flees through dream. He flees all the way over to Egypt, and then Herod dies, Herod the Great dies, and it says uh, he comes back. Well, Matthew makes this connection and says, really, this is um, prophecy from here. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Let's just be honest for a second. Would you have made that same connection? If he was not inspired by the Holy Spirit, you'd be like, you know, I don't really see that, but he is, so we're going to go with it. Um, So Matthew says, I want to show you something, people, that I'm writing to. Jesus really is the true son of Israel. So he said, Israel is my child. I loved him out of Egypt. I called my son. Matthew is trying to say like, okay, that's the Old Testament people. And Jesus is the new version of that. Jesus is the son of God in the New Testament. And you're like, okay, um, I'll, I'll make a little more proof of this. You know what the next verse is here? What's the problem with the people in Israel? They don't listen. Um, when I, when I, my daughter, we're reading the um, Zondervan's The Story. I, we mailed that out to everyone, I think, uh, two Januarys ago. It's really good, like 32 chapters. You can get through it. So she reads the chapter about people during the time of the judges, and she, it's a long chapter, and she gets done, and she says, hey, Dad, that could have been a lot shorter. I'm like, what do you mean? She said, well, you could have just said that Israel disobeys all the time. So that's, that could have been the summary, and this is exactly it. So we have this beautiful passage. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And now we have this sad reality, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to Baals, and they burned incense to images. So in the Old Testament, God is saying again and again, I loved you, people of Israel. I loved you, Jewish people. You were my own, but you know, you just didn't listen. And so Matthew is attempting, I believe, to make this connection to say, like, that didn't work. But now you need someone who is going to work. And it actually happens a little bit more. Um, do you know what section hap- comes, if you got your Bible along, what section comes right after um, Jesus fleeing back and coming back from uh, Egypt? That's really not a conditional statement. Uh, regardless if you have your Bible along or not, the next section is John the Baptizer. So now just imagine, we're going to talk a second about the history of Israel. Um, timelines go this way. All right, the, the people are in Egypt. They leave, and how do they flee? Through the ten plagues, and they go through the waters of the Red Sea, right? And then what's the next thing they do for 40 years in the wilderness? They wander as God tests them. They don't have food, and they worship Baal, okay? Does that make sense? Um, It doesn't make sense, but that's what happened. Jesus, now this is Matthew's structure to his book. And I'm not saying this is for sure, but there sure is a lot of similarities. He makes the connection that Jesus really is Egypt, as he points out uh, one verse before this when he quotes this as Jesus leaves Egypt. He leaves Egypt as a kid. He then stands in line shoulder to shoulder with sinners as our substitute. And then he leaves the waters of baptism. Let's see if this is sounding familiar. He leaves the waters of baptism, and what does God announce? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is, this is the right one. This is, now, there are no chapters and verses in the original. What is the very next thing that happens? Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days with no food and he is tempted to worship the false god. Do you see at least a connection here? I think there is, and I think he worked pretty hard to do that. So this is how he tells the story. The difference, though, is the people of Israel go to, and they're tested. In fact, the Holy Spirit takes Jesus into the desert to be tempted. You can't even read that. I'm... <laughs> That didn't work out well, so hold on. 
I've got to find the right angle. Okay, sorry about that. Um, I will read it to you. And then Jesus was led by the Spirit. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, then, can you highlight that and make it white? Not to put you on the spot. There's a thing called quick edit that says, like, if your pastor is clueless about color coordination, <laughs> click this button. Don't worry about it. We'll... Um, so then Jesus is led by the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit... Le- oh, wow. Nice. Uh, then the Spirit is led by... We're going to have to do that a couple times, so just get that on the ready. Uh, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Holy Spirit takes him not to be tested. This is a different word, to be tempted by the devil. Um, the evil one, the slanderer, the accuser, all those are the same name. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he's hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now it really highlights it. A couple things. One, he's led by the Spirit. And two, the question is if. The temptation is this. The devil comes to Jesus and said, I want to question your identity. If you really are the Son of God, then there's a couple things that should be true. One, you have power. And two, you can take this food and you can use it. You can make this food out of these stones. So he's saying, I want you to doubt. The Holy Spirit led you here. I want you to doubt the plan that God has given you. And I want you to like, take things in control of your own hands. And you know Jesus' response. You won't be able to read it. Uh, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not uh, live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know where this comes from to make this connection again from Jesus to the people of Israel? It comes from the book of Deuteronomy. Here's the full version of it. So uh, the people are, um, they disobey, and they've got to wander in the desert for 40 years, the, the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses, this is the, uh, Deuteronomy, the fifth book. So we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, number five. And he's kind of summarizing. He's saying, hey, this is why God took you into the desert, in case you guys didn't get it. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart. So God is testing them. Whether or not you would keep his commands, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. What is this giant lesson that they spent 40 years teaching to the people? What did God want them to realize? It's not stuff. It's not things. It's not these things of the world. I want you to recognize that your sustenance, your life really comes from God the Father. Who understood that perfectly? As the devil comes to him in the desert and says, you should make these stones into bread. And Jesus says, you know what? Man does not live on bread alone. So the devil tries again. Uh, temptation number two. This one does look good. I, I, um, this is a model. Those are not giant Nephilim huge people in the background. This is a model of what Jerusalem looked like at the time of Jesus. And this is in Israel. You can find this. So Jesus is taken up to a high point in the temple. We don't know exactly where that is. So take a look at this temple mount model and figure where do you think it might be 
Two possibilities uh, we don't know for sure. The first one would be on the top of this building, which is right in the center, which I'll, I'll come back to that slide in a second. The other is this is what the Temple Mount actually looks like. If you can read that, that's not a basketball hoop right there. It just looks like it. Um, the corner there, that's about six, seven, eight stories, something like that. And they used to send the trumpet blast in the morning, so some people believe that's the spot. So I'm going to take you back here. Does it really matter where the devil took him? Not, not really. Okay, so the devil takes him to this high place. I don't see it, and to be honest, I don't see a great connection between the Old Testament people of Israel and this temptation. So we'll go through this one quickly. It's ruining my point. Um, dear Megan, uh, if it's possible, please fix that. So then the devil took Jesus, or took him to the holy city, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he asks, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands. This is a terrible misquote of a psalm, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. This one as a kid never made sense to me because I thought, why couldn't Jesus just jump down? Because God does promise, doesn't he? He's going to have his angels look after you. Why couldn't Jesus just like jump down and God would just like swoop in and show this? I think it kind of works like this. Um, do I love my kids? I should ask this. Do you love your kids? If you have kids. If you don't have kids, do you love your cat? <laughs> All right, no, like, do, you, do, you love, uh, do you love your kids? Yes, you love your kids. That, the cat illustration is not going to work, actually. Um, so do you love your kids? You do love your kids. Are you willing to do just about anything to keep your kids or your nieces or nephews or grandkids safe? Yeah, you look after them. You make decisions. You um, make sure they eat right. You do things like that. Now, what happens, though, if would you be willing to jump in front of a speeding train to save your kids? You're supposed to nod yes at this point, actually. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, you would. The kids are looking at their parents like, eh. Um, yeah, a train, a, a vicious animal, a bear, whatever this is. You're willing to do this, right? Now, what happens if someone comes to your kid and says, hey, do you think your parents love you? And some of the kids, we would hope with a little bit of uh, prodding, would say, yes, my parents love me. And they'd say, do you think your dad would be willing to jump in front of a speeding train to save you? And what happens if they say yes? And then what happens if that person says, well, I think you should stand in front of a speeding train to see if your dad really loves you? That's kind of this temptation. That's kind of how I see it. So uh, the devil is coming to Jesus and said, hey, if you really are the son of God, God is going to look after you. And you should be willing to do this, and God is going to do this to prove your love for you. And what is Jesus' response, essentially? He says, I don't have to jump in front of a speeding train. I don't have to jump off this thing because I know God loves me. In fact, Jesus says, if you could read it, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Temptation number three. So again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says, all this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. The question here is not if Jesus is the Son of God. He's already moved past that. The question now is, Jesus, how is Jesus wired? He comes to this planet to do two things, to worship God with his life and to serve. These are the two things he's going to do. And the devil is asking him, Are you going to serve God and worship him, or do you want to serve, God, uh, serve me and worship me? And I think of all the temptations, this is probably the one that resonates the most with us. Because as human beings, you really are wired to worship. As human beings, you really are wired to serve. And God is coming to you, the devil is coming to you and saying this question. Are you going to follow these other things or are you going to follow 
God. The hardest part about this whole section is this. Have you ever heard a sermon on this before? Usually what happens is when you, you, you go through this sermon, the, the pastor gets done and he says, now, just as Jesus was tempted and you are going to be tempted, this is how you fight off temptation, just like Jesus. And you've heard that before. So I grew up with this idea that said, okay, when I face temptation, all I need is the perfect Bible passage. And everything is going to be just right, right? You just pull that right out of your quiver and you just pull up that perfect Bible passage and everything is solved. Like, do you ever play video games? Has anyone ever played like the original Mario Brothers? It is way easier to beat Bowser if you have fireballs, right? If you have the right weapon, it's super easy, and he goes to jump, and you just laugh, and you shoot your fireballs, and he blows up, and the bridge disappears, and you go across, and you save Princess Peach. You're like, this is fantastic. Well, the, say, you know, a couple years ago, you decided to, with your vicar uh, to finish the new Super Mario Brothers on Sunday nights, and you get across. It's way easier, again, if you have the propeller things, and you shake it on the Wii, and you can swing, and you can go and be... Maybe you play Candy Crush, and um, you're playing Candy Crush, and you're like, you know what I need at this moment? I need to stop playing Candy Crush. You could, that's the answer every time you ask that question when you're playing Candy Crush. Um, but you say, at this moment, I could use whatever these things are, these speckly chocolate donut thingies, which blow up all the colors that you want, like these color bombs. This is what I need. Or if you're really in a jam, you could use like these striped color candy things. Does this make sense? Okay, so now, whew, you guys don't play Mario. You're like, I don't waste my time playing Mario. I play Candy Crush, though. Uh, right, so just trying to find, you know, the level ground here. Right, and sometimes it feels like when you're, you're suffering a temptation, if you just had the right weapon, everything is going to be all right, right? But is that how it works? Have you found that in your life? It says, like, you're thinking of having a bad thought, and then you just think, oh, God says, do not look at a person lustfully. Gone. You're at the store and you're thinking about buying things when you don't have money and you just think, huh, it says in the Bible, uh, con- godliness with contentment is great gain. That temptation is now gone. And you just walk no problem past all the stores and you just, I don't even know why I'm here, you wonder. I just have to go get essentials. Right, is this, right, is this happened to you? <laughs> I'm trying to preach here. All right, so, so right, right, this is not how it works, though. Like, you, you, it's this battle, right? And you fight, and you use these words, and God's word is powerful, and he says it's the sword of the Spirit, and it does help you in those instances. But the temptation still sits, and the temptation still comes. And so I would always leave disappointed when the pastor said, this is all you have to do, and then I would face my first temptation and think, I'm terrible. Maybe I just have the wrong pa- The Bible's huge. Maybe I just got the wrong passage here. Maybe I need the super, super bomb or something like that, and it doesn't work that way. I think the takeaway, if I was take a take, have a takeaway from the devil tempting Jesus is this. The devil hates you. The devil wants to destroy you. The devil wants to kill you and have you burn in hell forever with him. That is the devil's goal. Scripture says he's a roaring lion that prowls around looking for someone to devour. That person is you. He wants you to die. And he will stop at nothing. Nothing to make that happen. He will um, misquote Scripture. He'll take people that you love and have them come to you and tempt you to do things you shouldn't do. He will take people that you respect and come and use them to tempt you to do things you shouldn't do. He will take all, anything possible, and he's been at this game forever, to try and have you burn in hell forever. That's the takeaway.
and the devil knows you. It's one thing to beat someone and, and fight someone when they don't really know who you are, like you're the mystery person. Do you think that's how the devil sees you? He's like, man, I don't get that person. Give me a break. You think your spouse knows you? They've known you, what, 10, 20, 30, 40 years? You think your kids know you or your parents? The devil's been at this game of damning people for thousands of years. There is nothing that you function in that he does not understand. And he knows you inside and out. And you know how I can prove it? How is it that all your temptations are different, like a snowflake, yet the devil comes to you at just the right way to get you to do the things you don't want to do? How does he know just the right screw like smog with that one like chink in the armor and he knows just the arrow to zing in there so that the temptation comes and you're thinking, why does this happen to me? And he befriends you. And he pretends he's your pal. And he says, you know what? This is going to be so fantastic. This is what we should do. And he convinces you, this is awesome. We should gossip. And we should look at this. And we should talk this way. And we really are better than other people and all these things. And he convinces you to sin. And you know then what he does? He turns it around. He turns it around, like right in front of you. And he changes this. And, he's, and he starts to question the very thing he did to Jesus. And he says, if, if you are really the son of God that God has made you, if you really are a daughter of the king, would you look at porn? Really? Would you drink this way? Would you talk this way about other people? Would you lie and cheat? Would you be this lazy on the job if that's who you really are? And then he starts changing your identity. And he, he says, is that who you are? No, you're a slut. You're a sleazeball. You're a dirtbag. You're, you're disgusting to me, and I am the devil. And you sit there, and you start to wonder, is that really true? Is that really true? Is that who I am? Do you know who knows you better? Do you know who knows you better? The one who knows how many hairs are on your head. The one who came and was tempted in every way that we are, but was without sin. The one who made the giant gas balls that are on fire in the sky, just so we have billions of stars to look at at night. The one who formed your body. The one who made you. The one who says, this is not who you are. I want to give you a new name. I want to give you the name forgiven. And I can do that because I lived perfectly when the devil came to me. I could do that because of that. I could die innocently. And because of that, God raised me from the dead and I can come to you and I can give you a new name. God does not love you because you're so awesome. God loves you in spite of the things you've done and he looks at you in the eyes and says, you are a son of God. You're a daughter of the king. Take a minute just to think about how that changes your life today. The devil is going to come and try and change your identity. I mean, we got the Super Bowl coming up, and that, that, that labels every single person if they've made it to the Super Bowl, if they've won. Your job labels you. Your school labels you. Your kids label you. You label yourself. But I, of those labels and those names that give your identity, I think the most important one, as we talked about last week, is baptized and approved. And as Jesus comes to you and says, you truly are my son. You are my daughter. You are forgiven.